Job played an important, the book of Job played an important part on a Tom Cruise movie. Does anybody know which movie that was? Nick, which one? The first one. And what is it that the, he, what's the part? The, 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 I don't remember, that movie was so confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Tammy, do you remember? It's John 314. Yeah, I think it was 314. Yeah, because Jim and I just watched it the other day. Yeah. Yes, the, the, the key to break the code is in Job 314, right? And then he kind of stares at it. There's a Bible on the bookshelf, and he grabs it. Yeah. Who knew that Tom Cruise knew about the Bible, huh? Yes, Linda. Yes, we are all children of God. No. <laughs> there, yeah. Um, so the, the sons of God uh, that are listed here are the angels in this particular passage. Uh, there are a couple places where the expression is used to refer to angels. And it's interesting that uh, it can also refer to fallen angels as well. There's a title for angels in the plural in, the, in these situations. So... Now, remember Claudius' line from last week? that uh, He said that uh, when sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions. Right? The idea that uh, when it, that rain, it pours. And that's exactly what is going on in chapters 1 and 2. Job's life is falling apart, and it's falling apart at God's instigation. That's something that we can't miss. Look again at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? It is God who instigates the the persecution that Satan brings into Job's life. And there are at least three lessons for us in this chapter that we'll take a look at toward the end of our time. But as we begin, let's review what we saw last week. We saw that we can divide the, book of the first chapter into four scenes. And we took a look at the first two scenes of the book of Job. The first one being where we meet our hero. And our hero is Job. Look at verses 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses each of his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. So you see that Job was a pious man. He wanted his family to, to be right with the Lord. He wanted, he wanted to intercede and minister to his family and minister to God on behalf of his family as well. It's so difficult to go through a book like this because, uh, without really getting bogged down because you feel like you're leaving all kinds of stuff 
behind. And as a pastor, you only really get to go to, if you stay in a church for a long time, you really only get to go to a book once in your ministry. And, and that's it. But we could go here and explore all kinds of ideas. Like, uh, why, where did Job get the idea that sacrifices were necessary or that God would accept sacrifices on behalf of people? Uh, the, you can see that there's an, kind of an intrinsic or innate thought that somehow we need to atone for our sins before God. is innate to humanity there. We see that he was an up, upright man, a man who followed the Lord, a man of great wealth and thought well of in society. But that, he's not the only one that we met last week, at least in the book of Job. We also met our villain. Every good story has to have a bad guy, right? Somebody to wear the black hats, uh, like in the old Western. And in, our, in the first chapter of Job, that is Satan. Look at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to, to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So here Job, uh, the villain comes in and we have this tension introduced that's going to be uh, explored for the rest of the book where Job where Satan is not really just attacking Job. Job is just a pawn in the game that he's playing. What he's saying really is, God, you're not worth, worthy of being worshipped unless you give all these kinds of gifts to people. If, if Job didn't have all these gifts, he would not worship you because you, God, you are not worthy of worship. Really, that's what Satan is doing, is accusing Satan. I'm not, I don't know for a fact, but I think that it's from this passage that the idea of praying that the Lord would put a hedge of protection around you come, um, comes from, uh, as from Satan's word, saying that God had put a hedge around um, uh, Job there, this leafy green protection that Satan can't really penetrate uh, there. So those are the first two scenes that, we, scenes that we saw last week. Today we're going to start with the third scene, in the first chapter of Job, ends the plot tension, where now the fight or the, the issues that's going to dominate the rest of the book is going to be described, and we find that in verses 12 through 19. And uh, uh, it's important that we notice that the text makes it crystal clear that God was fully in charge here. God is not a, just a side player. God is fully in charge of everything that's going on here. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Satan can only do what God tells him to do. God is always in full control. He's in full control here, and he's in full control all the time. And what unfolds in the remainder of the first chapter is an account of a series of brutal attacks on Job's blessings. Remember, what is, what is Satan's thesis? Remove the blessings, and Job is not going to worship you because you, just by being God, is not worthy of his worship. So the rest of the chapter, you have a series of brutal attacks on Job's blessings because God said you can't touch him. We're going to save that for chapter 2. In chapter 1, you, you can only attack his things and his family, but not him. And these attacks come in very rapid succession. They, they are stacked upon each other with each successive attack growing in intensity and brutality. Look at verses 14 through 15. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. The Sabians killed all Job's servants and took all his oxen and sheep and leave just one to tell the mess. That's the, the theme here. Uh, Satan kills everyone and then leaves just one to go tell Job the the bad news. And then right after that, fire consumes Job's sheep. Look at verse 16. While he was still speaking, you see how it's coming in just rapid succession. It's not just one day something happens, then next week something happens, one after the other. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And even as he's still talking, Job loses all his camels as the Chaldeans raided Job's flock. Look at verse 17. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Satan made sure that the bad news would get to Job. Right? That, that, Satan doesn't like to do things in secret. That's not his thing. He wants people to know what he's doing, what is going on, all the bad stuff that is going on. And you can notice that in the repetition while he was still speaking. The, 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 the increasing brutality of these attacks is revealed in the fact that each successive loss is more valuable than the previous one. In the ancient Near East, sheep were more valuable than oxen and donkeys. That's the second attack. The first attack, first attack was the oxen and the donkeys. The second attack was the sheep. And then the camels were the most precious of all the animals. And that was the third attack. You can see the intensity of those things going on. And then the ultimate attack was when Satan killed all his kids. Look at verses 18 and 19. <clears throat> While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. All ten kids, dead. All at once, in one evening, they are gone. Now, to, to lose one child is overwhelming. 
But to lose all your children all at once, that's just unimaginable. I, I can't even imagine uh, that. I can't imagine the pain of losing one child, let alone losing all your children all at once. But you can see the intensity of Satan's attacks continue and getting more and more intense each time with each attack. And the plot tension is found in how Job will respond to all his losses. Remember what Satan's thesis? Once you remove all those blessings, he's not going to worship you because you, God, are not worthy of worship. So how is Job going to um, re- respond? Will Job maintain his integrity and vindicate himself and by implication vindicate God? Or will Job curse God and prove Satan correctly? Correct. And that's where scene four comes with a resolution. At least a partial resolution because the plot will continue throughout the book. Look at verses 20 and, uh, through 22. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Had the book stopped here, if this was the end of it, then God would not have rebuked Job as he does towards the end of the book. Because as far as we know, as, oh, not as far as we know, we know for certain that so far Job has been righteous in the sight of God, as verse 22 tells us. And we see how, how does Job respond to God? Well, first we see that he responds with, with deep, profound grief. It says that he torn his clothes, he shaved his head, and this is not you know, a neat little nice bald shave you know, with a, 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 a nice razor. This is the kind that you look crazy afterwards with patchy spots and so on. This is the indication, the indication of sorrow and uh, in, in grief on his, his part. And yet Job, not Job, Job maintained his integrity and demonstrated by his actions that God is worthy of worship for who he is and not merely for the blessings that he gives. Do you see the pain in verse 21? Do you see the faith there in verse 21? And he said, as Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think it's interesting that what we read here is contentment. But notice that contentment doesn't have to be this happy, slappy thing. You think Job was singing this with a very uh, major key sort of harmony with happiness? No, this would be a dirge, right? It would be a minor key song if you were singing it. There was a sadness. And yet his content with the sovereignty of God and the blessings that God had given him for the time that God had given him. The Lord gave it. And then Job was happy that he had had his children, his possessions, and the Lord took it away. He continues to bless the name of the Lord. And this now looks like the end of the book, but it's just really the beginning of, the, of Job's true challenge that's going to, we're going to see throughout the book. Any questions so far before we continue? So, three lessons I think we can find here for us. At least three lessons. I bet we could find more. 
these are going to be, none of these are going to be earth-shattering. None of them are going to be novel either, because I'm just not a novel sort of guy. I'm just a copy-and-paste sort of guy. So I don't come up with new ideas. It's just, you know, from other people and put them together, perhaps. And there's nothing new in the things I'm going to say. So don't look for, don't get your pen ready looking for these super-duper insights that you've never heard before. But these are things that is good for us to hear again and again and again. And the first one is this, that God is sovereign over human suffering. This is important for us to hear. And to hear again, to hear again, so that when we go through suffering, we have a firm grasp on this. God is sovereign over human suffering. After Job experiences the series of tragic events that we just saw, he falls to the ground and worships God. He doesn't say, Satan did all this to me, which would have been true, but he acknowledges the ultimate controller, sovereign, sovereign over all things. And notice that Job doesn't say, the Lord gave and Satan took it away. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord took it away. This reality is both a comfort and a challenge to our faith. If you stop and think, you're going to see that, you're going to see that both are there. The reality that God is sovereign over human suffering is both a comfort and a challenge. Knowing that God is fully sovereign over all that comes to pass in, the, in this world and in this life is tremendously comforting. There is, there is great comfort in knowing that God is in charge and nothing can befall us that God has not purposefully ordained. As Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And knowing that God is in charge of everything that happens to us, and that He loves us, allows us to get through some very difficult situations. I cannot think there... I think the two most difficult situations in life that I can conceive in, in by experience are these. Number two most difficult would be the loss of a child. And the number one would be the law, the, the, a child going astray. I think that's worse than a death of a, a child. But to go through that without the assurance that a God who loves me is in control and appointed that very thing to happen, it would be devastating because that means that those things have no purpose. When a, 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 you know, we have a friend, some of us have a friend who, who years ago a son died of brain cancer at 18 years old. And you ask why? And if God is not in charge of that, then that boy died for no reason whatsoever. He suffered great suffering for no reason whatsoever. But if God is in control and sovereign and appointing those things, then we can have hope that there's a purpose in what's going on. But at the same time, as, as encouraging as it, as it is to know that God is in charge of suffering, knowing that God is in charge of everything that happens to us and that He is in charge of suffering raises the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to exist? And that's the greatest challenge to the Christian faith. It's not creation. 
It's not the Trinity. It's not anything else. It's why is it that God allows suffering to exist? That is the major challenge, at least the major intellectual challenge to the Christian faith. One that we're not going to answer fully or even partially tonight. But we know that God is not the origin of evil. Our confession says the author, I prefer the idea of origin of evil, and there, there is no evil in him. James tells us that. James tells us that this, let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. John says, This is the message which we have heard from him, and declare to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So there is no evil in God, therefore he cannot be the author or the origin of evil, because there is no evil in him. And yet, he is in control of it. We also know from our text that God allowed Job to suffer. And allow and permit and ordain all the same thing. One word might be more uh, palatable for us than the other, but they all mean the same thing. When we suffer, we have to wrestle with the idea of why God is allowing this in our life. That's a challenge that we have to face. Why Why does God allow suffering in my life? Why does suffering exist if God is good? And we're going to see more of that as we go through the book of Job. So the sovereignty of God. God is in charge of suffering. And that can be an encouragement, but also as a challenge. And probably the greatest intellectual challenge to the Christian faith. Any questions about this first lesson? Chris? Can you repeat that word you said? No. No. You're going to have to listen to this on the tape. No. (laughs) God is not the origin of sin. You know, sin doesn't come from him because there's, there's no sin in him, so he can't come from him. But yet, somehow, he is the uh, appointer responsible in some way for it. He ordains it, he's in charge of it, and yet it doesn't emanate from him because there's no sin in him, there's no darkness in him. Yes. Any other questions that I may not answer for you tonight? <laughs> I have lots of not answers for you. Uh, okay, lesson number two. Satan's accusation should lead us to examine our hearts. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, my phone is showing something different. Then. Lesson number two. Doesn't show there. But lesson number two is, is Satan's accusation should lead us to examine our hearts. What is Satan's accusation? That God is not worthy of worship unless he blesses us. That's, that's, that's Satan's contention. Okay? So we need to ask ourselves, would I fear God even if there is no blessings? Would I fear God? Would I worship God? Would I love God even if there were no blessings? The issue that Satan is bringing up is whether God deserves to be worshipped because of the greatness of his character or must, must he buy his worship with gifts and promises of blessings. So, why do you worship God? Would you still worship him if you lost everything and, left you, and he left you only with Christ? So, Satan, in, in uh, accusing God actually uh, does a, uh, helps us think about our own worship of God. 
why is it that I worship God? Is that because of the blessings He's given us or because of the giver of the blessings? If we, all that were left was Jesus Christ, would we continue to worship God? Any questions on lesson number two? Okay. So lesson number three. Why, why we suffer? I said, wow, I thought you are not going to give any answers, and I'm still not going to. This is a partial answer that you already know what I'm going to say, but we are going to be addressing this throughout this series, so we're going to be asking this question, why do we suffer? But one, one thing we know for sure about Job's suffering, Job was allowed to suffer in order to demonstrate the genuineness of his faith. He was, it was, he was allowed to suffer, he was appointed to suffer, so that his faith could be proven to be true, to be honest, to be genuine, to be real. And the Bible tells us that's the same with us. That's really the theme of 1 Peter. Peter is trying to prepare the church for suffering. In verses 6 and 7 of the first chapter of the first epistle of Peter, Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So, why? In order that, in verse 7, the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Job was allowed to suffer so that his faith could be tested, be proven, to be genuine. Job was also allowed to suffer in order to glorify God. And he said, oh, that's an easy way out here. And, but it's true. Everything that's done is done for the glory of God. And Job was allowed to suffer to glorify God. In allowing Job to suffer, God was not only vindicating, vindicating Job, but he was also showing his worthiness to be worshipped simply for being God and not because of the blessings he gives to his people. This is not the only story in the Bible where somebody suffers in order to show that God is glorious. This is not the only story in the book where somebody suffers physically in order to glorify God. Can you think of another story that is clearly stated, this is happening so that God can be glorified? Chris? Paul, okay. What? Joseph, okay. Those, there's a lot of, those are more by implication, but there's a passage in the Bible that says, this, is, this man is suffering physically because he was born blind. Yes, it's John chapter 9, uh, where Jesus himself says, And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that, we, that he was born blind? So the same thing that Job was dealing with, the idea that if something bad happens to you, because you did something bad. And Jesus says, No. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Have you ever thought about suffering as an opportunity to glorify God in your life? Have you ever thought about, in the midst of something that you're going through, in the midst of some suffering, as a God-given opportunity to glorify Him? Now, 1 Corinthians 10.31 has that pesky word. It's like, whether therefore you eat or drink, or... What's the next word? Whatever. Whatever. 
And that's one of those words that just include everything else, not just drinking and eating, but whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. And the cross of Jesus Christ, which was an ancient instrument of suffering and shame, became for Jesus a means of revealing the glory of God. That's the ultimate turning of suffering into glory was the cross of Jesus Christ, where the, God, the glory of God was revealed there on the cross. Any questions or comments on this third lesson? Yes, Linda. Um, if people don't suffer well, the question is, if people don't suffer well, is God glorified? God is glorified in, in some, some way, no matter what. Right? There's some aspect of God that is glorified, but not the one explicitly intended in that sense. Right? Uh, God's worthiness as an object of worship is not glorified when we don't suffer well. Does it make sense? His justice may be glorified, or some other attribute might be glorified, but that's what's not the revealed intent of suffering for us. And we are not purified either when we don't suffer well. Does it make sense? It's not accomplishing what it's supposed to, to accomplish there. Tanya. There will be some indications, right? Uh, because in verse 22 it says that in all this, Job did not sin, no charge. So with the opposite, in all this, Job did what was right. So sorrow is part of suffering well. Grief is part of suffering well. Worshiping God is part of suffering well. Mourning is part of suffering well. Uh, recognizing God's sovereignty not in just an intellectual way, but actually from the heart. The, the God is the one that brought this into your life. Is suffering well. Not trying to excuse God from this situation is suffering well. And acknowledging that God is still good in the middle of death when it says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? Happy be the name of the Lord. is part of suffering well. So we gather these things from, um, from Job's experience. If you look at First Peter... Increasing in faith through suffering is suffering well as well, right? Having a faith that's greater and purified in suffering is suffering uh, well as well. So these, I don't think we can get just from Job 1. Job gives us a bunch of things. But if you look at uh, Joseph's situation that uh, Hannah brought up, where he suffers and yet he continues to serve the Lord and be, uh, being upright in your suffering, is part of suffering well. Uh, Chris brought up Paul. Paul also suffered in all that. He kept on giving glory to God. So we can put a, a sketch of what it looks like from all these passages. There. Any, any, yes, Chris. So to go off Linda's question, so uh, we're commanded to glorify God, right? Yes. Not more or less. So. Not, you know what I mean by like, That's why we're made. We're made to enjoy Him and to glorify Him. So if we obviously slack, which we're going to slack, and not glorify Him when we don't suffer well, mm-hmm. like, like you mentioned 
is still, that's where we're basically sitting and failing, right? But he, I mean, he doesn't need us to glorify him, but yeah. he, he commands us to. And so, so it's important you understand what glorify. Glorify is not adding glory to God. Glorifying is declaring the glory that God already has, because we can't add to God, because it's already perfect, right? If you're perfect, you cannot add anything to perfection. So to glorify is to declare something that's true about God. Okay. So uh, when you talk about glorifying Him, that's what we're talking about. It's magnifying, manifesting what's true about God for other people to see through our lives. Okay. So, so we fail So that's not being sent out. So we dim, in a sense, God's, you know. Presence in the lives of other people, even though he may be in other ways. Yeah. All right. So, conclusion. Yes. Go ahead. Should we desire to suffer for Christ? No. I. Uh, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> uh, um, I don't know that we're to desire, but we're to count joy when it happens. Right? That's what James 1 says. It doesn't say desire suffering so you can count it all joy. It just says count it all joy when trials come into your life and so on. So I don't know that we are to desire suffering, but we are to take sufferings from the hand of the Lord. Right? And you know, I, I'm okay with God working faith in me by just prospering me as far as He, he wants. And no, no insult to me there. Uh, but God, he says that's not how he usually does things for us. Yeah. I don't pray for persecution for the church. You know, I, I, I know some people that do, because historically it's a time of purification. When you look in history and the church suffers, it becomes more faithful. Uh, but I, I pray that God will find other ways to do that, but also that if we suffer, that we would have the faith to do that well. So I don't know that we need to be masochists as far as desiring to be suffering. I always, when you say that, it always reminds me of Ignatius of Antioch, this uh, bishop whose childhood dream was to be a martyr. <laughs> That's why he grew up wanting to be. Uh, little Ignatius, what, Iggy, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> I want to be a martyr. And he wanted to be a specific kind of martyr. He wanted to be eaten by the beasts. That's the kind of martyrdom he wanted. And all we know about him is from all these seven letters that he writes... Once he was finally arrested, he tried and tried, he was finally arrested for, for his faith. And the, the letters are written to tell the Christians on the way to Rome, please do not stop me. Don't, don't do anything to try to free me. Don't, don't try to convince me. Just let me go to Rome and be thrown to the beast. I'm not sure that that's really what God intends you know, when I think about suffering. So, that's that. Conclusion, as we're going over that. At the end of the day, no, suffering is a complex subject. It's not something that is a yes or no or black and white all the way through. And there are no easy answers. And the answers become even more difficult in the middle of the suffering. That's why we're trying to do this when there are no major things that that perhaps we're going through right now. God does provide us with some answers to the mystery of human suffering in this chapter. But ultimately, we need to trust that God has a good reason for allowing human suffering to exist. One of the ways we cultivate this is in our heart, this trust in our hearts is by looking to the example of Jesus Christ. 
Now, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily snares us, and let us run with endurance the race they set before us. How? Look into Jesus. Right? That's how we do it. Look into Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the, God, of God, of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such facility from sinners against himself, that you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Lord, I do not know why this is going on. I don't know why, I don't know why you're allowing me to suffer, but I know Jesus has suffered. He's gone before us. And he stood it up. He stood through suffering and arrived at the end. And because he arrived at the end, I am going to arrive at the end as well. And as we journey through the book of Job, we will continually wrestle with the mysteries of human suffering. And I want then, as we do that, to encourage you that when you feel doubt and confusion, you need to look to Jesus. That's really what it says. For consider him who endured such a silly from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Because Jesus really had no reason whatsoever to suffer. Nobody can say, ah, you know what, but he had that 0.001% of badness in him that really deserved suffering. No, that's not there. And yet he did so that you and I could have eternal life. So that suffering would be a momentary thing, not an eternal, an eternal thing.